When David came near the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies, they shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, to those who were in Ramoth of the south, to those who were in Jatur, those who were in Aror, and those who were in Shifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of the Jeramelites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormah, those who were in Korashan, those who were in Athak, and those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire not only to understand it, but to live it. And we pray that you would be with this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Well, before I leave this chapter, I want to deal with one more theme, and it's the theme of stuff. How do we handle stuff? And Christians are all over the map on this question. Uh, there are uh, Christians who are way too preoccupied with stuff, and others who trivialize it and take a cavalier attitude to it. Uh, you'll find People who have made idols out of stuff on every level of the continuum from the libertarians to the socialists all the way along the lines you'll see people inappropriately handling it and then there's people who do not think about stuff enough there are Christian ascetics who think that stuff is the root of all evil and there are others who think, no, 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 if you don't have enough stuff, it's an obvious uh, evidence your Christianity uh, does not have much faith. Uh, some people measure their Christianity by how much they get, and some people by how much they give, and there's all kinds of variations in between all of those positions. And even though this passage does not say everything that could be said about uh, stuff, it definitely deals with the key issues. Uh, the whole chapter is preoccupied with stuff being stolen and stuff being uh, returned. And today's sermon is uh, on how stuff can help us measure our hearts. So we're going to be looking at the lack of stuff, the loss of stuff, and the, the gaining of stuff. And we're going to start with these Amalekites who sure didn't think that they had enough yet. Uh, they've been taking advantage of the fact that the Israelite armies and all of the Philistine armies have gone up north and they have been engaged in pillaging everything in your maps from Bethel on down. And that's one of the reasons why David is returning some of the stuff to these Israelites later in the chapter. And in verse 16, they think they have it made. They are eating and drinking and dancing because of all of the great spoil that they have taken. And I think we have in these Amalekites a wonderful picture of covetousness and envy. <clears throat> if you know anything about the Amalekites, you know that they've been engaging in this kind of activity for generations, uh, but they can't quit. They never have enough. And the reason is that covetousness is never satisfied. It's like a big black hole. It sucks in all of that money and it just disappears and it's always looking for more. True story. There was an um, international um, <clears throat> uh, professional development teacher who gave an assignment to the class one time on writing something in the class, and then they were going to review all of these, uh, these writings. They were to write what I would do with $1 million. And for the next 30 minutes, 
you know, they are writing out all of their dreams in English. And finally, at one point, um, one tall lady went up to the front and in obvious disgust threw down two pieces of paper that had all kinds of things scribbled and crossed out and, and uh, marked up. And uh, she told the teacher, not enough, teacher. I got to have a, another 100,000. <laughs> and apparently she was serious, you know. For her dreams to be fulfilled, she needed another 100,000. Well, with a lot of people like that, even if they had another million, it probably still would not be enough. And that's the way it was with these Amalekites, generation after generation. So why didn't they work to create wealth instead of constantly stealing wealth from their neighbors? And the answer is that the very character defects that led to the covetousness in the first place are the, the absence of the very things, they're the opposite of the very things that make for successful businessmen. In our leadership conference uh, a couple months ago, I gave an acronym at the beginning, uh, Goes Farther, uh, to explain some of the key characteristics that have made for successful leaders as well as successful uh, businessmen, especially those businesses that have been able to perpetuate this over, over generations. What are those characteristics? Well, most of those 11 characteristics are lacking in the Amalekites. I'm not going to repeat them this morning, but I do want to highlight three of those. The first one is future orientation. Now, we've got to be anchored in the past. We've got to be responsible in the present. But the orientation is looking forward. It's not always being preoccupied with the past. And future orientation, doesn't matter which survey, which study you look, all of the successful leaders have been future-oriented. <clears throat> and Amalek lacked that. Like their ancestor Esau, they were extremely present-oriented. If they wanted it now, they had to have it now, no matter how this is going to destroy uh, their, their future. Just remember uh, Esau. I think he's just an excellent example of this. Esau was willing to trade in his future birth inheritance, his birthright, so that he could taste and eat a tasty meal right now. That is the height of present-orientedness, okay? And the Amalekites uh, inherited that from their, uh, uh, their father, this present-orientedness, and it always tends to be coupled with covetousness and envy. Now, last week, I pointed out a number of ways in which America is fast becoming an Amalekite uh, culture on many different levels. Well, here's just one more evidence uh, of America be, becoming like the Amalekites, even on the area of economics. <clears throat> Americans are like the descendants of Esau. At its heart, socialism is covetousness and envy, isn't it? Now, what's the foundation block of covetousness? It is present-orientedness. Present-orientedness is rife in our society. And how do I know that? Well, it's just the statistics on debt. That's all you have to look at, and you know we have got a very present-oriented uh, culture. A future-oriented person will scrimp and save so that he will be able to buy something uh, in the future Whereas a present-oriented people will keep buying on credit even though the credit's going to burden his future and make his future miserable. But he doesn't worry about that. The future is a long ways off, but he's got to have this enjoyment uh, right now. And by the way, we're not talking about business loans where there is um, a shared risk and there is a shared reward. It's, it's building money, actually. It's not, it's not simply uh, consumerism. We're talking about debt for consumption talking about consuming the future, not preparing for the future, sacrificing the future for the present. So there are different kinds of debt, but you look in America, most of it is consumer debt, isn't it? It has nothing to do with making money. And so when we do that, we are acting very much like Esau. Very few people buy cars, furniture, computers, TVs, and other day-to-day -day consumption items with cash. They are spending their future so that they can enjoy the things that they are consuming right now. Now, if you do that, 
by definition, you are present-oriented. You can squawk and argue with me afterwards for all you want, say, I'm an exception. Well, you can, there are exceptions. Nehemiah talks about one of the exceptions where even on consumer things you can, uh, you can it, it's a curse though, but uh, where it's not a sin uh, to be getting in debt. But still, when people don't need to and they're getting in debt for consumption, they are present-oriented. And we are in our nation spending more and more of future generations' income. And it's just incredibly destructive. We've lost our Christian heritage. We're fast becoming a Malachite, not just on the things we looked at last week, but even on these economic issues. Now, you may not think of yourself as a covetous person, but at least consider the possibility that covetousness has indeed gripped your heart if you are consumed by the need to have things now and your consumer debt just keeps increasing. So future-orientedness, that's the first key component of successful leaders, and its opposite, uh, present-orientedness, is a key component of an Amalekite culture. A second key component of success is deferred gratification. Now, that may seem almost like the same thing because it it really is a subset of future orientation, but think of it this way. Future orientation is the big picture key to success. It's the long-term planning. It's trying to get out of debt. It's laying up an inheritance for our children. It's even planning for our children's children. Whereas deferred gratification is the moment-by-moment ability to deny our desires if those desires do not fit into the overall future plan. Okay, that's deferred gratification. It is the ability to crucify unhealthy desires. Well, Esau was not able to do that. And his descendants took this problem to the extreme. Lack of deferred gratification is fertilizer that causes covetousness to grow unchecked. And of course, this is incredibly rife in our nation. It's rife in the church. The third thing that Esau lacked was a solid work ethic. And this laziness was passed on to the Amalekites as well. You know, on these things, it's just amazing the generational sins that happen. We see this in our nation. How many generations of people who are welfare recipients and they feel trapped, they just cannot get out of that? It's, uh, by the way, that's a kind of plunder too, isn't it? It's almost like the, the Amalekite uh, culture. But Scripture clearly links laziness to coveting and envy. For example, <clears throat> Proverbs 13 verse 4 says, The soul of a lazy man desires... There is the covetousness, or some people translate it, craves, and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Proverbs 21, in verses 25 through 26, The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous man gives and does not hold back. And that inward covetous craving is linked over and over again in the Scripture uh, to laziness. A lot of people don't recognize that they're lazy because they can be very uh, hard workers in certain situations. But think of these Malachites. I think it probably took a lot of work to engage in that plunder, didn't it? And um, there are uh, a lot of people that I think of as lazy people. They can be active given the right circumstances. It took work for Esau to hunt. That was his favorite pastime. It takes a certain degree of creativity and energy to look busy at work when you're trying not to work. (laughs) And I've seen people, and I just stood in marvel at one man who it seemed he expended more energy trying to look busy and not working than if he had just gone ahead and done the work in the first place. But anyway, let me clarify what laziness is and is not. Laziness is not lack of activity. Most lazy people, as I said, uh, can be very active in certain things, but laziness is a failure to embrace responsibility. That's laziness. It's procrastinating responsibility for a more pleasant activity. Could be involve uh, failure to finish a project. Could involve stopping something simply because, oh, I don't really feel like it. You know, it's not fun anymore. It almost always lacks uh, self-discipline. But here is my definition, and you can look in dictionaries, very similar definitions of laziness. 
It is a disinclination to responsible actions despite having the ability to engage in them. A disinclination to responsible actions despite having the ability to engage in them. Anyway, those are the three characteristics of, of Esau. They contributed uh, very heavily to his well-known covetousness. And these patterns were passed on to the children and to the children's children until at some point the Amalekites began to engage in a constant lifestyle of theft and plunder. And I think we need to evaluate where are our kids on this continuum? Our goal should be that they have stewards' hearts, but they're not going to have that if they don't at least have future orientation, deferred gratification, and a Protestant work ethic. Now, there are other important issues we looked at in the leadership course, but those are key. Okay, the second characteristic of Amalek was envy, or what Herbert Schlossberg calls ressentiment. If you want to be really, you know, give a word that nobody knows what it means, you can throw that one out, ressentiment. This differs from covetousness. Covetousness wants something that somebody else has. Envy goes a step beyond that. Envy and ressentiment, yeah, they want what this other person has, but they're willing to destroy what that other person has if they can't have it. They hate the fact that other people have what they don't have. At least there's resentment over the fact that other people have something they cannot get. And this is the root of the socialistic ideas in America. This is at the root of the Occupy movement. If everybody can't be rich, well, then let's bring the rich down, right? <clears throat> we see the, this in the Amalekites burning Ziklag to the ground. And that's just spiteful. They've already taken every living thing, everything that they can move that's not nailed down to a house. Why would they burn it down? Why can't they just leave it there? It's because envy wants to destroy what it can't get. Envy has led more than one woman, beautiful woman. I know two situations of this. Beautiful women who have marred the face of another beautiful woman with acid or a slice with a knife or something like that because they thought that woman was more beautiful than them. And you wonder, what is bonkers with this woman? Why would they do that? It was because this woman had never learned to crucify envy within her heart. Taxing the rich higher is not even going to make a tiny, tiny dent into the deficit and, you know, this whole idea of um, taxing and soaking the rich, it didn't make any economic sense whatsoever. You could keep raising the, the tax rate, you know, to 60, 70 percent of the rich, and you're not going to make a dent in the, in, in the, the economy. And really, uh, they don't care that it's going to drive some of these businesses out of America and even further hurt the poor. See, envy is irrational. It wants to destroy what it cannot have. By the way, the Scripture links envy to demonic activity. And uh, Colossians 3, 5 says, All forms of covetousness and envy are idolatry. It's irrational, it's demonic in its origin. And if you have sensed this morning the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you've got even an inkling of covetousness, even an inkling of envy in your heart, you need to flee from it because it will destroy you just like it destroyed uh, the Amalekites. If you envy other person's intellects, you crucify that and say, Lord, make me content with the intellect that you have given to me. If you envy somebody's riches, crucify that and say, Lord, instead of this envy of what they have, help me to be generous with what I have and help me to put on the future-orientedness and the deferred gratification and, 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 the, and the kind of Protestant work ethic that you could prosper and that you could, you could bless. Godliness with contentment is great gain, says Paul, but covetousness and envy reveal a heart given over to idolatry. So the first point illustrates that just because you lack something does not mean you're void of sin. Uh, there, there are Christian socialists like Ronald Sider who say God is on the side of the poor. That is nonsense. Uh, God sides with the poor in spirit, but it's only God's grace that can produce the poor in spirit. 
But I can tell you, some of the most materialistic, envy-filled, covetous people in the world are poor people in third world countries. Okay? Uh, Envy and covetousness, those twin evils, they're equal opportunity destroyers of the rich and the poor. You'll find it in America. You'll find it in third world countries. Talk to any pastor in third world countries. They'll say, oh, materialism's rife in our nation. It is out there. Okay. Point two. There are some lessons we can learn from losses as well. And verses three through six show massive losses. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hand and have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. That's the mystery of stewardship. It never clings to anything and yet possesses all things. Let me read that again because I think it's a marvelous stewardship attitude. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hand and have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. So let's test our stewardship hearts on three levels. And all three of these are on point number two, the loss of things. And in this case, it was the loss of almost everything. The first level is given in verse six, and it's dealing with our hearts. Now, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. And that's literally was bitter. That's the problem. But look at what they were bitter over. Every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now this but amazingly shows that David was not bitter over the loss of his sons and daughters and his wives. That's just an amazing thing. Instead, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I have, um, well, let me just back up a bit. Even though David lost exactly the same things that all of his men had lost, his focus kept him from bitterness. Now, we talked a lot about that verse, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, but one interesting point that I missed is that these men were not bitter over the loss of things. We've got to give them credit where credit is due. What does the text say here they're, they're bitter over? It's not over the loss of things. I have met people who have gotten very bitter over lost money, lost jobs, lost houses, even lost opportunities. And these men at least had stewards' heart to that degree. They were willing to relinquish those things. What it says is they were bitter over the loss of their family. Now, we can certainly understand that bitterness. We can sympathize. I think most of us, if we were in their shoes, we would be tempted to get bitter uh, as well. But bitterness is a sure sign that we do not yet fully have a steward's heart like Job had in Job chapters 1 through 2 or like David had in this chapter. Both Job and David wept. That's an appropriate emotion. Both of them had anguish of heart. That's an appropriate emotion. But Job did not get bitter when God took his children away. Now, why do I tie this bitterness together with a lack of stewardship? Well, it's because a steward will be able to say with Job, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He may say it with a lot of tears. He may say it with a broken heart, but he will still mean it when he says it. I think the hardest prayer I've ever learned to pray because I could just imagine the things the Lord was going to take away from me. You know, my memory, my books, and there were other things like that. But it was this prayer by St. Ignatius. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and all that I possess, You have given all to me. To you, O Lord, I return it. All is yours. Dispose of it wholly according to your will. Give me your love and your grace, for this is sufficient for me. As stewards, we don't say anything as our possession. 
Now, it doesn't make us a, a passive doormat. David was anything but a passive doormat. I mean, the last part of verse 6 there, he is praying Psalm 69. He's asking God to take action. He's praying down God's curses on the Amalekites. I mean, that is taking action. That's not passivity at all. And then in verse 7, he's going to God to seek further guidance. Is there any hope of getting my kids back? And he is such a steward of his wives, his children, and his stuff. He is not going to give up until he hears God say no. And he's not heard God say no yet. So don't think of this as being a passive doormat in any way. But a stewardship attitude will look to God in faith and submit if God makes regaining something impossible, but will aggressively defend God's property when people attack it. A steward does not cling to things as if they are rights, but instead he will pursue things as if they are responsibilities. It may seem like a subtle difference, but they are poles apart. Now, if the compass of your life is properly magnetized, everything in us will point north. If it is not properly magnetized by God's grace, everything in us will point south towards self. Okay, just think of your life as a compass. And negative emotions are the symptoms that our life is not properly magnetized by God's grace that we have stopped being stewards. Or to change a metaphor, you know, you go to the doctor and he's always poking around and he finds a place where you wince and he says, ah, there's something wrong inside there. And those negative emotions are the symptoms that there is something wrong inside, that our hearts are not lined up to God and that we need to rededicate everything to God. Now, this is not the only, bitterness is not the only negative emotion that's the the symptom that we are not properly or fully stewards. There are a lot of negative emotions. For example, righteous anger can morph into bitterness Proper sense of guilt over sin can morph into an unrighteous sense of worthlessness if we don't have our eyes fixed on Christ. A righteous feeling of being heartbroken can slide into a hopeless sense of being betrayed by God. A righteous sense of being tired and worn out can slide into an unrighteous sense of apathy. A righteous disappointment with having lost a battle. And who of us is not going to be disappointed if we lose a battle, right? That could be a righteous thing. But that can slide into an unrighteous feeling of helpless defeatism. Confusion can easily become cynicism. Concern can become fear. Pity can become condescension. Okay? Now, on each of those illustrations, the godly emotion was present when our focus was of a steward before God and the negative emotion arose as we started to become self-focused. Now, I don't have time to develop this fully, even though I think this is such a significant point here. I took three pages out and threw them away because I knew, ah, I got to cut somewhere. But uh, if you start poking around spiritually as you're examining yourself and you wince, and the wincing that you're experiencing is bitterness or one of these other negative emotions, you might ask God, Lord, where is it in my life that my stewardship is not lined up? I need the needle of the compass of my life to be magnetized toward you. Okay, the next point indicates that when you are a steward, you're going to fight hard to honor your stewardship when Satan tries to rob it from you. So I see it as a good thing that these men are willing to endure risk and incredible pain and exhaustion uh, in order to regain their families. It shows that they valued people more than they valued things. And that's good because God values people more than he values things. And I doubt these men would have gone to uh, those incredible lengths if it was just to get back their goods, but they were willing to lay down their lives for their families. God does not tell you to lay down your life to save your favorite guitar when your house is burning down, right? But he does tell you to lay down your lives for your children, your wives. And during tragedies, we can see the degree to which we value something. And we have to ask, does my value system line up with God's value system? And I think too many men say that they value their wives and their children more than they value stuff, but their priorities seem to indicate otherwise. 
I read about a robbery that took place in London. Uh, thieves broke into the bank, and they're actually going after the safety deposit boxes, and they managed to get enough open where they, were, they stole an estimated $7 million. Well, one woman had a pile of stuff in there. Uh, her jewelry was estimated at 500000 and she was crying and saying, everything I had was in there. My whole life was in that box. My whole life was in that box. I think that would indicate some idolatry. And I would hope that that would not be words you would say if your house burnt down with everything in it, that my whole life was in that box. Uh, that would not be a right priority. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So proper stewardship has a proper value on things. Okay, the third measure is seen in the generosity of these men toward the half-dead Egyptian. Now, they had themselves had lost practically everything, but they stumble upon a man who has lost more than they did. They at least had food and water, and they shared that food and water with this dying man. And as a result of rescuing him, they stumble upon information that made them a fortune. And it uh, kind of reminds me of how the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel was started in New York City. It was in the <clears throat> late 19th century. There was an elderly man and woman who came in out of a thunderstorm into the lobby of a small Philadelphia hotel. They w go up to the, um, to the registration desk, and the man asks, do you have any rooms that are available? And the woman quickly interjects, We've been to all of the different hotels, and nobody seems to have room. Well, there were no rooms, and the clerk who was working that night was George C. Bolt. And he explained that there were several conventions in town, and he doubted there were any rooms available in any to hotel in Philadelphia. But he went on to say, I wouldn't feel right about turning you out on such a nasty night. Would you be willing to sleep in my personal room? Well, the couple was taken aback with that generous offer, didn't quite know how to respond, but he insisted that he'd, he'd be able to get along quite well if they would use his room. Well, the next day, as the elderly couple was checking out, the old man told the clerk, you're the kind of man who should be the manager of the best hotel in the country. Maybe someday I'll build one for you. And they all chuckled over this joke, and uh, he helped them get their baggage out and put it into the car, but it actually wasn't a joke. This man had been so impressed uh, with um, the, the clerk that that night he determined, you know what, I'm going to build a hotel and I'm going to make this man the manager of it. And he did. Two years later, to this guy's surprise, he invited him to be the manager of the, uh, the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel. So he noticed this man going the extra mile. And in the same way, David went the extra mile because God's law called him to. What did God's law say? It said that when you see even a stranger, even a pagan that is in need, that is in your midst, you need to love him as yourself. You need to minister to the suffering. And we looked at that last week. Now, David could have come up with all kinds of excuses as to why he didn't need to do this. Uh, he was in a desperate hurry. This is interrupting something of critical importance. Uh, you know, uh, what he's doing is far more important than stopping and ministering to this man. He could have come up with all kinds of excuses. And even though they may have been true, David showed compassion to a dying man. And because he demonstrated a steward's heart, God says, you know, I'm going to just keep blessing you. Your stewardship heart is worthy of more and more blessing. I'm often amazed at the generosity of poor people in India and China and Ethiopia who are willing to bless you out of their poverty, serve you a meal they can barely afford, and do it with joy. Just an amazing thing. And yet I'm amazed at how many rich people are stingy. It's just it's the oddest thing. But the real measure of our hearts is how generous would you be if God took everything out of your life? Would you be generous? And so we've seen that the losing of stuff is a great test of our hearts on three levels. Now, the last thing that we're going to look at is the incredible way that our gain of stuff can be a tool to reveal the state of the heart. Are you getting, are you getting the impression stuff is a pretty important instrument in God's hands? It really is. We should not minimize stuff. Stuff is very important to the Lord, and God can use 
the, the lack of stuff, the loss of stuff, and the gain of stuff to cause us to grow, depending on how we respond to it, or all three of those things can destroy us. Now, for some people, the more God blesses them, the more their hearts turn away from Him. Why? Well, Ephesians 5.5 and Colossians 3.5 says that covetousness is idolatry. So if you're feeding covetousness, you're feeding idolatry, automatically your heart's going to turn away from the Lord. Does that make sense? If you feed covetousness, you're going to feed idolatry. Automatically, your heart will turn away from the Lord. Now, it's not stuff itself, but the love of stuff that's the root of all kinds of evil. And unfortunately, many parents, even Christian parents in America, have been teaching their children that it's okay to covet. 2 Peter 2, verse 14 says, They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Wow. You want your kids to be permanently cursed by God Almighty? Train them in covetous practices. Guarantees that they will be accursed. Ephesians 5.5 5 says that no covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 5.3 says that covetousness, like uncleanness, should not even be named among us. Okay, it's something that should not be in our vocabulary. It shouldn't be a part of the Christian life. And so when I speak of gaining of stuff as a blessing from the Lord, it's only a blessing as we are stewards. And I'm just going to be very, very quickly highlighting a few thoughts from verses 18 through 31. <clears throat> First, God could have given the stuff and the wives and the children back to David and his men so much more easily. Boy, he made them work hard for that. But you know, we don't tend to value things that we get easily, and we incredibly value things that we have had to fight and sacrifice for. And let me just illustrate that. One development organization in Africa was complaining that every village that they have helped out, things just seem to go to pot. Uh, for example, they went to this one village and uh, sewage, filthy water. And they got them a clean water system. They got them a sewage system that was working. And it seemed to eradicate uh, some of the diseases almost overnight. Well, several months later, it wasn't even a year, several months later, they went back and the water system wasn't working and the sewage was plugged up and things were back to the way they were before. It was just a filthy mess. And they asked them, how in the world, when you could just do a little bit of maintenance, can you put up with this filth? And the chief said, well, the equipment doesn't belong to us. We're not responsible to fix it. And so they realized that this is just not a good thing. So they agreed to rebuild this on two conditions. First of all, they said that everybody who uses this water has to pay for it. It might, it might be minimal, but everybody has to pay for it. And secondly, that a group of villagers would become contractors who would be trained to maintain the system and they would be paid by the fees. And it worked like a charm, just worked like a charm. If stuff does not come easy to us, we tend to value it more, and there's a lot more going on here than this, obviously, we've seen in the past, but at least that may be part of what was in God's mind. Now, verse 20 is rather interesting. It says, Then David took all of the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now, the translation's not super clear here. It's not David who was saying... This is David's spoil. Um, <clears throat> in, in fact, we're going to be seeing David has totally different ideas than taking it as spoil. In the Hebrew, it is, they said, this is David's spoil. Now, there is a, a they earlier in the, in the verse, but it's not real clear in the syntax of the New King James Version. They said, this is David's spoil. Now, let me back up a bit and explain what the other livestock was. There are at least two groupings here, but if you keep reading in the chapter, you're going to find three groupings. First of all, <clears throat> there is the plunder that came from Ziklag. Now that got returned back to the rightful owners. They didn't distribute that equally amongst each other. You know, whatever got stolen from one person's house, that got back to that person's house. Then there was the plunder that was gained that the Amalekites had taken from the Philistines. That was something that was distributed to the 400 and to the 200. 
and actually part of that to, to Israel as well. And the law of God already gave what the proportions of that should be. Then the third part was what had been stolen from Israelite territory. I believe that is the other livestock that was being uh, driven uh, before. But the 400 men, using King Saul's thinking, generously gave David the stuff that had been taken from the Israelites. This is the way Saul would have worked. They gave what wasn't theirs to give and wasn't David's to receive. And this false generosity was more hero worship than it was a lawful approach to the plunder. And it's very easy to be generous with other people's money. Our politicians do it all the time, <laughs> right? By the way, these, these same people who are so into hero worship now, I mean, they're just, oh, yeah, David's the greatest. Let him have all of this. They were ready to stone David to death uh, one day before. So it just puts it into perspective. But the same people who show this false generosity to David show incredible selfishness in the, uh, to the 200. Look at verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. And by the use of the term recovered, they're indicating even the stuff that was stolen from those 200. We're not giving that back to them. Okay, it's so easy for us to become possessive of newfound wealth that God has given. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But it reveals a bad heart. Abraham Lincoln uh, one time had two of his sons in tow, and they were crying and screaming at the top of their lungs. And one of his friends said, what is the matter with your boys? And Lincoln said, just what is the matter with the whole world? I have three walnuts, and each boy wants two. <laughs> and you've probably seen the same thing. Uh, some people become possessive the more they get. In uh, Langdon Gilkey's book, Shantung Compound, he talks about the Japanese invasion of uh, China. And, uh, a lot of the foreigners were put into a compound. It was actually a former uh, a church compound that was there, uh, more like a minimum security prison than it was a POW camp. But anyway, at Christmas... Uh, the American Red Cross uh, was allowed to bring in a truckload of uh, goods for these people. And you would think that the distribution of these care packages would be a no-brainer. It'd be so easy, especially since there were 1,200 packages and there were 600 people there. Just distribute two per person. But it became uh, quite the, uh, the ordeal. It became quite a problem because the Americans observed that these care packages came from the American Red Cross, and therefore these should only go to the Americans. Now, if Americans want to give away their own packages, that's up to them, but the whole shebang needs to go to us Americans. So here they are being given, in God's grace, incredible plenty, and they're possessive. They're possessive, and I think uh, we have seen that this is a, a characteristic of human depravity. Now, I've labeled point D as a false generosity number two because of the way the second half of verse 22 is worded. They act like they're being reasonable when they offer to give the wives and the children back to the 200 and let them live. They say, okay, we're not going to give anything except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. Now, that implies they have the right to give or to withhold those women and children. So even in their pretended generosity, they are really stingy. Not all of the 400 said that. It was just a few. But you have probably seen people who give, but boy, do they give stingily. Uh, or they invite you in hospitality, but it sure feels like you better not eat too much, uh, you know. And the rich sometimes can be unbelievably stingy. Let me read you from Proverbs 23, 1 through 3 describing being invited for dinner to the house of an incredibly rich man. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Now, he is saying that the rich man can be stingy in heart while giving every appearance outwardly of being generous. And he says, don't be fooled by that. You're going to regret if you eat too much. And he goes on to describe this miser in verses 6 through 8. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. 
eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And we're talking about the heart in terms of stewardship. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Why? Well, it's because getting generosity from a miser is no fun. Okay, you feel beholden to him. You know the miser feels taken advantage of. Uh, he feels that you now owe him. Everything you eat is his precious possession. Now, a steward's not going to be that way. It's great fun eating at a steward's house, right? And in verse 23, David explains his own stewardship attitude that everything comes from God and belongs to God. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. He's pointing out, even though they had enormous sacrifices that they had made, getting all this stuff took a miracle from God. And it was a miracle. It was an amazing thing. It was God who prospered their way. And all of this stuff must be seen as belonging to God and having been entrusted to him, to them, excuse me. When you see everything, absolutely everything, as being from the hand of a loving God, it's much, much easier to have stewardship attitudes. Point F, David's generosity was not self-centered or reckless. It was governed by the law of God. Verse 24, for who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So not only will these men get back what was robbed from their homes, they're going to get some of the plunder from the Philistines as well. And the way verse 24 is worded it, David is implementing what the law of God had already indicated was the proper proportion. And uh, the translation here, I think it's unfortunate, it's misleading. Uh, it's not equal. And the word alike is not in the Hebrew at all. Here's a, a better translation. As his portion should be, they shall divide. But then verse 25 has David making his first kingly edict. David's edict is the implementing of the law of God, something that Saul failed to do. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So David is acting in a kingly fashion by giving statutes and ordinances. That's okay for countries to do that. But since he is a steward, he doesn't just make this up out of the blue. He makes his statutes and his ordinances based upon the word of God, the law of God. And this is so critical to stewardship. It is God's law alone that can define what is appropriate in the handling of stuff. Saul had made up his own rules as he went along and he ignored the law of God when it came to plunder, completely ignored it. But David as a steward related everything to God and everything to God's law. And I think the proper translation of verse 24 uh, backs that interpretation up. Point H says that rather than using the stuff to enrich himself or to manipulate others as Saul had done, David sacrificially restored some of the losses that the Israelites had experienced in the circled area that I've drawn there for you on your map. Uh, commentators point out that David didn't even take his own spoil. Okay, He returned what appeared to be Israelite stuff to Israel. And what I understand by this is that David was using stuff for broader kingdom purposes. Now, he could have used some of this uh, to make himself comfortable, but he really had a passion for broader kingdom purposes. Now, I do have some commentators who cynically say, ah, David's just buying off you know, the southern Israelites so that they'll make him king. He's currying favor with them. There may have been some of that uh, that was involved, but I really take it that David had a kingdom vision and God rewarded that kingdom vision. Now, there's one last motive that's hinted at in the last part of verse 31. It speaks of David sending gifts to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Those places had stood by David when he was fleeing from Saul. He now returns the favor. And so this is talking about believers giving to other believers who are in need. And all of this shows to me that stuff had not become an idol to David. He used stuff. He valued stuff because God, you know, values it as well. But stuff was ultimately a gift from God's hand and needs to be used to God's glory. And I believe David exemplified Christ's call to us in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
Nothing wrong with stuff. God's going to add all kinds of stuff to your life. But only as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as a steward is it going to be of any value to you. Now let me conclude by reading you a pretend dialogue between Jesus and a Christian. This is found in Juan uh, Carlos Ortiz's book, Call to Discipleship. So when man finds Jesus, it costs him everything. Jesus has happiness, joy, peace, healing, security, eternity. Man marvels at such a pearl and says, I want this pearl. How much does it cost? The seller says, it's too dear, too costly. But how much? Well, it's very expensive. Do you think I could buy it? it costs everything you have, no more, no less, so anybody can buy it. I'll buy it. What do you have? Let's write it down. I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? I have nothing more. That's all I have. Have you nothing more? Well, I have some dollars here in my pocket. How many? I'll see. 30, 40, 50, 80, 100, 120. $120. That's fine. What else do you have? I have nothing else. That's all. Where do you live? I live in my house. The house too. You mean I must live in the garage? Oh, have you a garage too? <laughs> That too. What else? Do you mean I must live in my car then? Oh, you have a car? I have two. Both become mine. Both cars. What else? Well, you have my house, the garage, the cars, the money, everything. What else? Are you alone in the world? No, I have a wife and two children. Your wife and children too. Two? Yes, everything you have. What else? I have nothing else. I am left alone now. Oh, you too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, everything. And you too. Now, you can use all those things here, but don't forget they are mine, as you are. When I need any of the things you are using, you must give them to me, because now I am the owner. Brothers and sisters, there will come times where God will test your stewardship to see if there's any magnetism left in that needle, uh, the compass of your life. It may be only one thing that he takes away. Maybe it's an investment that he takes away. And your response to that claim upon your life may determine whether you're a steward that he can entrust with more. Maybe God will, just to see if that compass is pointing true north, he will take away a loved one. And when you are able to worship and serve God as Job did in Job chapters 1 through 2, and when you are able to pray for fellow believers who have a hundred times more than you own and say, Lord, bless them, as Job did in the last of that book, God will say, yes, the compass of your life is pointed north. I can trust you with even more. See, Job had nothing. And all of his friends that he was praying blessings upon, they had all kinds of money, right? When he could pray blessings upon them, when he had nothing, God said, yes, the compass of your life is right. And at that point, it will become clear to God that stuff is not dangerous to you. In fact, it'll be a tool, tool that you can use effectively in his kingdom. And when it comes time for you to go to heaven... God will be able to pour forth into your lap such abundance of heavenly stuff that it will take your breath away. And so my admonition to you, brothers and sisters, is be stewards. Enter into the joy and into the blessing of the Lord. Amen. Father God, I thank you for the reminders of your word. And I pray your grace, your rich blessing upon this, your congregation. First of all, blessing them with stewards' hearts and then blessing them, Father, with uh, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Help us to honor you moment by moment. May the needle of our lives point north and not south. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.